is Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raises us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thanks very much, Rachel. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Madesh. Uh, please do keep that passage open in front of you as we look at it. Let me pray and ask God to renew us as we reflect on his words. Father in heaven, it is quite something to be confronted with the reality that apart from you, we are dead people on death row. Would you give us soft and receptive hearts as we listen to your words? Would you give us life? Amen. Have you come across the movie, Don't Look Up? Uh, it's one of uh, Netflix's recent releases, and it was quite successful, surprisingly so. Um, but the basic plot is this. There are two uh, fairly low-level astronomers who accidentally discover a comet that's hurtling right towards Earth. It's almost certainly going to crash into the planet and destroy it. And so they go on this massive media tour all over the country to try and warn humanity. The thing is, absolutely no one takes them seriously. Uh, politicians uh, think it's a laugh. Uh, and when they get to the point where it's pretty clear that things are going to go badly, and they can't deny it, they then try and kind of spin the story to their own advantage. It's a really interesting commentary on uh, power, greed, uh, the unrestrained pursuit of pleasure. It's a good portrait of what can happen if we're complacent, if we lose sight of what is true and we don't act with integrity. That's fiction. What's the greatest problem, really? In the 19th century, uh, the London Times asked its readers that question. What is the greatest problem in the world? There's a novelist, uh, George MacDonald, who responded with a one-liner. I am. Sincerely yours, George MacDonald. That's the kind of insight that we need. Ephesians 2, verse 1. 
Here's the greatest problem. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. A transgression here is doing something that goes against God's standard of what is right. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. The world, of course, says, don't look up. Don't buy it. Now, before we go on, let me remind you of the heights that we've come from in chapter 1. Do you remember God's plan to unite all things under Christ? We've been harping on about that for the last couple of weeks. That's what God is doing. That's what it's all about. And this letter is written to Christians who've heard about that. They've heard of all that God has done in Jesus, and they've believed. And so now they've come to share in God's riches. We also, by faith, are included in God's plan in Christ. And so we saw how we are lavishly blessed in Christ. Uh, last week, uh, we reflected on how God's desire is that we would grow to know Him better. And the way we grow to know God better is by knowing our hope, the sum of all that we have in Christ. By knowing God's inheritance, which is the church, it's us. We are His beloved. And by knowing God's power, which doesn't just include us in his plan, but is now at work in us who believe. Now, that is all pretty mind-blowing stuff. It's the kind of stuff that makes you go, wow, that's amazing. Hang on to that. That is the framework for everything we see in chapter 2. Those riches that we have in Christ are so much more wonderful when you read chapter 2, verse 1, we were dead in sin. Consider the sense in which we're described as dead. We were dead in our sins because, verse 2, we lived in them. That's an interesting paradox. It's the way cancer cells have a life of their own producing more abnormal cells. It's not true life, which is good and rich. It has the stink of death. Yeah, and notice what dead people do. Verse 3, we spend our time gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Now, the way flesh is used here refers to our sinful orientation. It's the direction that we go in by default. Left to our own devices, we reject God and what God wants for us. We don't believe that He's good or that He has our best interests at heart, so we go our own way. Look at those words again. We live to satisfy what our hearts want. 
our desires, our cravings. You know, it's got that sense of something that controls us. Uh, later in Ephesians, uh, chapter 4, verse 19, we pick up the same idea. This is what it says there. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Our sinful hearts have an unquenchable appetite, always wanting more, never satisfied. Just a little more is what our hearts say. Then I'll be full. Then I'll have enough. This is a fried chicken ad from back home. I think it's quite relatable. Have you experienced that? Doesn't have to be with fried chicken. But have you experienced that? There's this monkey on your back, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. It feels like the only way to get rid of it is to give in to it. But turn around, and the craving is right there. Just a little more. It promises life and satisfaction. But really, it's killing you. We see it most clearly in addicts, don't we? No one plans to end up washed out and desperate. But that is our shocking condition. We are slaves to desires that have been twisted out of shape. That, God says, is how dead people live. The addict in all of us is a worshiper. We either worship God or we worship our passions. We either love God and follow him or we love our desires and we follow them. And when we follow those sinful desires, they enslave us. Sometimes our lusts take a more socially appropriate face. Sometimes they spin out of control. Whichever it is, the addict, the worshiper, is in all of us. I mean, you can reflect on the kind of things that you want. We want to be admired by others. We want possessions. We want to feel safe. We want the respect of our partner and children. Appreciation from our employer. Sexual pleasure. We want to be desperately loved. We want someone to come along and tell us we are great and then either stay out of the way or help us so that we can get down to the serious business of self-indulgence and sensual pleasure. Desires that are bent out of shape. Desires without restraint. That's the human heart. And whether our cravings have been loud 
Maybe we were immoral or drunk or violent. Or whether they've been quiet. Maybe we lived fearing failure, fearing rejection, fearing poverty or illness. God's assessment of our condition is that we walked in death. I mean, that is quite a stark assessment, isn't it? Now, the picture's a little bit more complex than that. Our personal sin works together with the world and the devil. Each one of those is imposing in itself. Together, they absolutely overwhelm us. You can see that in verse 2. You were dead in your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. And now the world here refers to humanity which has collectively rejected God. Uh, see, this period of time in which we live is broadly characterized by social values, patterns and behaviors that are opposed to God. And those things have a really powerful influence on us. The voices we hear, the voices we listen to, tell us a story about what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. And that shapes our desires, what we want out of life. Here, the world is portrayed as being hostile to God. It's like a, a current that pulls you away from him. I'm not a swimmer, but when I was much, much younger, I went canoeing with some friends on a small lake. It was a really beautiful summer's day, and we absolutely enjoyed rowing out. But as the afternoon passed and time came for us to go back, we noticed that a really strong wind had picked up, blowing us away from the shore. Uh, initially, our, you know, we, we just you know, turned the canoe in that direction, and we just rowed furiously, you know, twice as hard as when we came out. But we just got further away from shore. There was absolutely nothing we could do. We were powerless against that wind. Well, maybe if we were fitter, we could have made some headway. But in that situation, we were powerless against that wind. Dead people are up against the world, and it's powerfully influential. The other influence, the third one, is a powerful spiritual being who rules over a host of evil spirits. Now, we've already come across them in Ephesians. They are the rulers and authorities. Their leader is named in uh, 4, verse 27, and chapter 6, verse 11, as the devil. Elsewhere in scripture, he's described as the father of lies. His strategy is to deceive us. Here's the sort of thing that he would say. Your desires and cravings are good. God gave them to you. Or God doesn't want what's best for you. You need to look out for yourself. You do you. Love is love. Follow your heart. 
don't look up. You might notice it's not true. So if you listen to him and follow him, it is at your own peril because he is a liar. The trouble, of course, is that dead people are powerless to resist him. So what does it mean that we are dead in our sins? Well, first, as we've seen, it means that we are powerless. We are completely unable to follow God. We lack the power to change ourselves. We are swept along by our sinful desires, by the world and the devil. Dead people cannot get up and help themselves. But second, we were also condemned. We lived under the sentence of death. Dead people on death row. That's uh, the end of verse 3. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Wrath here refers to uh, God's righteous anger. It's God's righteous anger against human wickedness. That's not an out-of-control rage. It is God's settled hostility against all that is evil. It is the right and just response of a good God who is determined to restore his creation. Perfect justice demands fair punishment for a crime. The problem is that dead people cannot pay the penalty for sin by their own effort. Now that's not a pretty picture. But that's the human condition. Are you tempted to not look up? Or do you see it clearly? Do you believe God's testimony here? Are you in that place dead? Or are you now alive? Remember, this letter was written to Christians. They were dead, but now they have new life in Christ. When God calls us to himself through Christ, he's calling us away from that slavery to sin, away from the false teaching and models of the world, and away from the lies of the devil. Re remember God's power. Remember it from last week. Uh, take a look again at chapter 1, verse 19. I'll pick it up from the middle of the verse. Uh, the power of God that's at work in us that power is the same as the mighty strength that God the Father exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. Think evil spiritual powers there. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Jesus died for the sins of those who rely on him. He pays the penalty in our place. And he was raised to life 
by the power of God. That immense power that is far above any other power in existence. That power we saw last week is for us who believe. It is at work in us now. We were dead because of our sins. But, do you notice that big but in verse 4? But, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. By faith, we've been united with Christ. We are in him. We are joined to Jesus. It is in Christ that the Holy Spirit applies all the benefits of Jesus' saving work to Christians. So his death to sin is our own. His resurrection life, it's our own. Him being seated in the heavenly realms, it's our own. That's why it can say in verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. That is phenomenal stuff, isn't it? When Jesus walked the earth, he had a dear friend named Lazarus. At what point Lazarus became ill? And Jesus could have rushed to his side and healed him. Lazarus knew that. His friends knew that. But he didn't. Jesus chose not to so that he could reveal his glory. Predictably, Lazarus died. He was in a tomb for four days. He was really dead. And then Jesus turned up. Neither Lazarus nor anyone else could have done anything about his condition. But listen to what Jesus said when he turned up. This is what he declared. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you? Jesus then shouted outside the tomb, Lazarus, come out! And he did. Death, like everything else in all creation, listened to him. It responded to his command. From that moment on, Lazarus' testimony was very, very simple. I was dead, and now... I'm alive. If you've turned from relying on yourself, if you have put your trust in Jesus, then that's your story too. Just like Lazarus, you can say, I was dead, and now I'm alive. Do you see the richness of what we have in Jesus? Through our union with Christ, what is his is ours. God's power raises us and then animates us. The dead come to life. The guilt and 
condemnation of our sin is dealt with. The penalty is paid. But the power of sin over us is also lifted. No longer are we slaves to sinful desires. Instead, our desires are renewed by the truth that is in Jesus. No longer are we swept away by the current of the world. There is another force at play. God's power has come to bear. No longer are we so easily deceived by the lies of the devil. Instead, we learn the truth that is in Jesus. One day we are also going to be saved from the presence of sin. For now, we struggle, though we are no longer slaves. That's the reason verse 10 can remind us that we are recreated for good works, to live good lives. We are still vulnerable to sinful cravings. When we aren't watchful, we can be led astray by the world or deceived by the devil. That's the reason when you read on in Ephesians, uh, chapter 4 calls us to put off our old self, to be renewed in our thinking and our desires, and then to put on the new self. We begin to want what is really good and true and beautiful. We find true satisfaction and enjoy God himself. He becomes our great treasure. Every positive command in the second half of Ephesians is matched by the negative alternative that sin would lead us to. But the difference between our past and our present condition is massive. It is enormous. Once we were dead, now we are alive. And so in God's power, we can learn to live in new ways. Listen to uh, what some of the rest of Ephesians calls us to. Chapter 4, verse 1. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. 5, verse 2. Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 5, verse 8. Live as children of light. 5 verse 15, be very careful how you live. 6 verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 6 verse 18, be alert. Doesn't that make you marvel at the wonders of our God? We have got the real hope, real hope of meaningful change. The last thing before we wind up. What is it that moves God to act for us in this way? We've seen it already in verse 4. God is moved by his great love for us. What a love. Uh, Jesus, uh, through his ministry, told so many stories of extravagant grace. 
One of those stories is of a lost son. He wishes his father dead. He takes his share of the family wealth and he blows it all on wild living. When he's left starving, humiliated, at his lowest point, he hatches this hair-brained idea to go home, beg his father for work as a hired hand, and somehow try to pay him back. But when the father sees him from far off, he rushes out with arms wide open. There's no lecture, there's no finger-waving. He doesn't even let the son lay out his brilliant plan. Straight away, he, he gives his son the best robe in the house, which would have been his own. He, he puts a, a ringer on his son's finger, reinstating him as a son. And he throws this huge party to celebrate. Now, this is what uh, the father says. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. No matter what we've done, God doesn't accept us reluctantly. He is generous beyond our imagination. His face is turned towards us in committed love. His arms are open wide. What a love. I mean, we, we read it in verse 5 and again in verse 8. That we are saved by the grace of God. He doesn't treat us as we deserve. He's extravagant in his generosity. The life that he gives us is the gift of God. Have you received it? Have you received it? God shows us through this passage that we were not good people who occasionally did a few bad things. We were dead, captivated by our desires, swept along by the current of the world, enemies of God and under wrath. We didn't choose one day to shape up and become spiritually alive. Dead people don't have that kind of power. We were in darkness on a road to destruction. If you're sitting here tonight and you realize that's still you, then hear these words and turn to Jesus for life. If you've already done that, then you need to realize that that is who you were but that is not who you are. Because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Remember that this week. At your lowest point, you're alive. God's resurrection power is at work in you. You can say no to sin. You can live purposefully. In Christ, we've been reborn, adopted, lavished with grace. We live our lives now to the praise of his glory.
Let me end for us in prayer. Oh God, what a love that is. That you could look upon us tenderly as a father and make us alive in Christ Jesus. Please will you give us faith to trust in Jesus for life. And will you help us to know your power in us so that we live worthy of our calling. Amen.